extraordinary pleasure for us at the uh, APGRD to introduce uh, Gwyneth Lewis. Gwyneth is um, quite an extraordinary figure in literary and, in fact, multimedia culture in Britain. She uh, was the first uh, Welsh poet laureate in 2005-06. She won the crown at the Eisteddfod in 2012 with um, a, a, a development of part of the Mabinogion. She has uh, featured in extraordinary range of media and genres. She's uh, directed television. She's written eight books of poetry uh, in both Welsh and English. She recently had a, a Welsh language drama, which I'm furious that I can't understand until I get my own um, English subtitled version about the uh, miners' strike and its experience in Wales. Um, and she was set in 1984 to five. She was telling me it started out sort of as a comedy, but the darkness of the material ended up generically subverting it. As uh, a classicist, she's very important to us. She did um, her doctorate actually at Balliol. She is a very paid up academic as well. Um, on 18th century uh, forgeries and fakeries, which clearly means you can't avoid using the words Greek and Roman occasionally. And um, also in 2012, at the Eisteddfod, but it's separate, she, I think, did her first play. Was it the first one? Um, or was Clytemnestra first? I think Clytemnestra was first. Okay. Yeah. Her second play was a Welsh language version of The Tempest. And I can't pronounce Welsh, but it's called something like... A Storm. A Storm. A Storm. And then the first one was, however, Clytemnestra. Now, I originally got very interested um, in Gwyneth in, in, um, because she is an absolute clear-eyed uh, uh, advocate of, of, of the idea that social class remains one of the uh, biggest problems obstructing progress in, in the British Isles and elsewhere. And she was extraordinarily helpful to um, me on a project I'm doing called Classics and Class, which has got very little to do with theatre. So it was with huge excitement I found out too late, because I hadn't seen it, that with the Sherman Theatre she had done her own version of Clytemnestra, which is what she's dominantly going to talk about today. Uh, this was an English language um, play, but Gwyneth um, has also had many other encounters with the classics, especially with her hospital Odyssey, where she uses this, the myth of the Odyssey to explore the idea of, um, of, of experience with her husband, uh, treatment for cancer. And actually, it's her interest in science that just gobsmacks me more than anything. This woman can put particle physics, and has put particle physics, into poetry. She's also uh, very extensively about um, mental illness um, in different genres, prose as well as poetry. I mean, she is a Renaissance woman. So I'll give you great lyrics. Thank you, Edith, for um, a fantastic introduction. And uh, thank you. I'm so honoured to be here this afternoon. Um, uh, I want to thank uh, Professor McIntosh and Claire Kenwood for their invitations um, because. Uh, I remember the work of, I mean, I know that the classics have been important in Oxford, 
for a long time. I seem to remember seeing when I was a graduate student here, seeing um, a, a production of Ag the Agamemnon in Greek at the Playhouse. Would that have been uh, the case? Yes, that's right. And uh, uh, I mean, having done the tragedy paper at Cambridge uh, as an undergraduate in the English faculty, um, of course, it was a great experience to hear the language in the original. Um, it, it, uh, it, it put a different view on the whole play. Um, so uh, this is a, a very welcome chance to reflect on a piece of work I did a few years ago uh, in the company of people who know far, far more than I do about uh, the classical drama. So I'm looking forward to uh, learning something this afternoon. Um, but uh, in a way, I've got a, uh, a way out in the sense of um, approaching the Clytemnestra story as a myth, I can say it's in mysterious ways. Uh, Clytemnestra does as well. In fact, now let's see if this works. This evening there will be some heavy showers. <laughs> um, this is uh, the poster that the Sherman Cymru used for uh, uh, the Clytemnestra uh, production. Um, Clytemnestra first reached out to touch me at a dinner with a, a film director, a, a theatre director called Philip Breen, who said, I think you should do a new version of the Oresteia. And now, um, Ted Hughes' Oresteia had just been on at the National Theatre, and I said, no, 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 we've had one too recently to, to do another version. Um, but I'd like to do new plays. Um, because it seemed to me that there were a lot of older male poets doing pseudo-translations, new translations of the plays, but fewer people doing new plays within those mythical stories. Um, so, you know, if, it seems to me that if you're going to do a new version, you have to bring something uh, novel to it. So, for example, Seamus Heaney with The Siege of Troy brought the context of the Northern Irish Troubles and the peace process to the plays. Um, uh, or you have to bring new textures into the language, as Tony Harrison did, has done with his distinguished translations. Um, or you have to bring some expert knowledge, uh, as Anne Carson's Oresteia and now her, um, uh, her uh, Antigone are doing. Um, but that, that comes from her being a, a scholar herself. Um, so I decided to cover, as my um, unique offering uh, in relation to these plays and the House of Atreus story, I decided to cover a period not in the original Oresteia. What happened between uh, two Clytemnestra, between the period of Iphigenia's death, her hearing about it, and Agamemnon's return. Another chance encounter to do with Clytemnestra, I happened to meet the actress Fiona Shaw, um, famous for her um, rendition of Medea. And um, I said, if you had the chance to do, redo any of the, of the classical plays, what would you do? She said, I'd do Clytemnestra, because ha do, did you notice that she's the only one in the House of Atreus, whose death isn't avenged. So um, I got the opportunity to, uh, I was commissioned to do two plays by 
the Sherman, Cumbry and Cardiff, and Theatre Cloyd in, uh, up in Mould. Um, and I wrote two plays. Only one was ever performed because the uh, second play, uh, it didn't work out. Although I did have one play about Clytemnestra and one play about Helen of Troy. Twin sisters, those of you uh, who know your um, uh, mythology. Um, and I thought a very interesting pairing because we don't often think of them together, even though they're intimately, uh, you know, they come from the same egg, if you, uh, you know, um, uh, take the view that Leda um, gave birth to an egg. Um, the one piece of advice that Fiona Shaw gave me about uh, the classics is that you struggle and struggle with them. But eventually, the plays let you in. And I did have a, a, a struggle. Uh, uh, it was one of the most difficult things I've ever done in this play. Um, but I think also one of the most rewarding, I wanted to have a play with a real moral dilemma in it, something at stake. This was the difficult thing to do. Um, and I wanted to focus on, on the way, I mean, this is the centre of all Greek tragedy, I think, how one action can at the same time be both just and unjust. And uh, the question being, how do you act, given that uh, this is the case? I had a number of false starts. Uh, I did an enormous amount of research um, and read everything I could. I, took a, I had a year at the Radcliffe Institute in Harvard, uh, and um, I read a lot of classical scholarship, everything I could get my hands on, and I took an introduction to drama and undergraduates course, um, which I thought I should know, because it was my first play, I thought I should know the basic stagecraft. Um, <coughs> I decided that I would take a step back and look at the power struggle between the gods, because this is a way of, of describing um, in modern life, necessities which are not easily accounted for in other ways, psychological necessities. Um, thinking of the original Oresteia, uh, I've always hated that third play, the Libation <laughs> Bearers. It's the most tricky play, isn't it, the Eumenides, in the sense of I never bought the cop-out that, um, uh, that Athena, allegedly a goddess without a mother, um, the solution that she offers in court, because uh, if, you, if you remember, she's the goddess without a mother, born from her father's head. Um, so she comes down on the side of um, uh, Orestes uh, and buys off the Furies by deciding that uh, a child belongs more to the father than to the mother. I think that's, is that a fair summary? I mean, you, you'll tell me if you disagree with me. I know you will tell me afterwards. Um, but that's my understanding of, of the, the compromise. Um, but I discovered by doing the research that, in fact, Athena did have a mother, Metis, um, who was one of the older gods defeated by, the, uh, um, by Zeus and his uh, cadre of gods. She, Metis, was raped and swallowed alive by Zeus. As is the way with older gods, they never die. 
but persists under pressure in the new dispensation. So um, mythologically, Metis stays alive and speaks wisdom to Zeus from his stomach. So you, if you imagine that the uh, Metis inside talking away, so Zeus's source of wisdom is actually Metis, who's been digested by him. So uh, the first draft of the play actually started uh, with a scene between Zeus and Metis. And the great thing about being a writer is you can give your film director absolutely impossible stage directions. And you, you have to have faith that, that they can uh, um, embody them on, on screen. So I, I'm going to now um, read all the parts in, in the uh, parts of the play. So. Um, I put them up on, 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 um, on PowerPoint as well so that you can follow them. So, uh, this, is, this is part of my unsuccessful first scene. Largely so that you can see the context in which my Clytemnestra exists. And um, uh, this context of eating and consumption and digestion actually becomes key to the whole of the play you'll see in different ways. Um, anyway, so here, here is um, this scene, and you'll, you'll see how th this is the origin of the power struggle. Metis. Um, so we've got Zeus and Metis on stage, right? Metis, shiny new gods. You may have won the war, but the defeated don't disappear. We have other ways of being heard. Stage direction. Metis comes out like a half-digested hag, covered in gastric juices and half-digested food. She looks hideous, staggers around, trying to clean herself up and adjust her eyes to the light. Zeus, I could have killed Metis. That would have been better. Do you know what it is to be... Oops. <laughs> Do you know what it is to be digested? To feel your nerves sucking mine dry, my story untold, my body hidden in acidic folds and kept there in the pulsing red dark while you carry on eating and all my strength made part of your system. So, um, as you can see, that, that this, in relation to Athena's coming down on the side of the father rather than the mother as the primary parent. This is, uh, this is a good, uh, how shall I say, uh, a pre-formulation of Clytemnestra's dilemma. Now, to recap the plot, I, I'm sure I don't need to, but perhaps I should for clarity's sake. Would that be uh, to recap the, pl the plot of, of uh, the Agamemnon? Um, Agamemnon set sail with Menelaus for Troy to retrieve Helen, who is Clytemnestra's twin sister. Stranded at Aulis, Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter with Clytemnestra, that is Iphigenia, in order to secure favourable winds. On his return from Troy, Clytemnestra, who's taken up with Aegisthus, murders her husband, thus passing the obligation to avenge her act on to her son, Orestes, who's hounded by the Furies. 
Now, the great thing about myth is its plasticity. The Greek plays were ways for our society to think about difficult issues collectively. They were moral experiments. In the same way that I think uh, detective uh, stories these days are. I mean, I take, for example, the, the, the killing, the figure of Sarah Lund with her torch going into a dangerous building is a figure straight out of Greek tragedy. And I think that the um, detective uh, fiction works in the same way because it's a, an investigation about what's taboo and what's difficult for us to swallow uh, collectively. So they're political uh, dramas in the same way as the original Greek tragedies were. In my play, I decided that the Furies would be obliged to avenge the death of a daughter just as much as the death of a son. So, uh, and that Clytemnestra would be haunted by the Furies in the same way as Orestes would be later, um, until she'd done right by Iphigenia. I imagined the Furies primarily as linguistic identities. And this perhaps comes out of my background as, um, as uh, having Welsh as my first language. Because uh, being bilingual, one of the great advantages of being bilingual is that you can see the power structure in a language. You know that these aren't um, absolute, but that they're relative and that their um, language is never a servant, but is always a master or mistress, pushing you around. You know that they're contingent. So, um, I've taken my uh, furies as to be that element of language which thrives on rage and hyperbole, and that can whip you up into a rage. Um, it's like that, uh, you know, into a, into a, a vendetta that's completely amen, uh, uncommensurate in some ways to the original situation. It's like that joke of a man breaking down in the middle of the back of beyond, in the middle of the night. And uh, he's thinking, oh, I, I, what am I going to do now? I haven't got a jack. And uh, he's going along, and it's dark, and uh, he's very fearful. And... Um, he sees a, a light in the distance. He says, I'll go and ask for help. It'll be fine. My saviour. Oh, but what if the person uh, says to me, go away, you know, I'm not interested in helping you. Um, oh, oh dear. And what if they say, in fact, you're trespassing and sets the dogs on me? Oh, my goodness me. Uh, that's even worse. So his own fears are stoking up his, uh, his uh, rage. So by the time he gets to the house with the light, he knocks on the door, and the man opens the window and says, hello, can I help you? He says, ah, oh, stuck your jack up your ass, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so these, these, this is the way in which language can push you into a situation that you never wanted. I also assumed free will in relation to the Furies. Um, that, that, in fact, the characters have the choice whether to listen to the Furies or not. Um, now, I want to show you um, 
this is Nia Gwynn as Fury Number One, uh, and Jay Griffiths uh, as Clytemnestra. Now, if you can see um, the, you can see the echo between the costumes here. The, the Fury is the pre-Clytemnestra as a murderess. Um, she's not entire. Well, she's not a human figure, um, but she's controlling Clytemnestra's actions. So it's almost like you have a linguistic hinterland behind you, which is, but it has an interest. It's always a plot device towards vengeance. Um, and I love the, the echo, you know, this, this kind of, these glove things that uh, look like entrails. Um, it's terrifying. Uh, in fact, Jay Griffiths, I remember in the middle of, uh, uh, after the first performance, she came out into the lobby and uh, Clytemnestra is such a fierce character that uh, I went up to her to congratulate her on her um, performance and she said to me, oh, what's wrong? They hate it. Nobody's coming to talk to me. And I said, no, no, they loved it. They think if you come and talk to you that they, you're going to kill them. <laughs> so it's as if it's a strange way in which, uh, you know, the role and the actress merge because it's such a terrifying, um, you know, Clytemnestra in full... Rage is a very frightening person. So these furies um, have a primitive, uh, it's, it's the ancient psychic force that demands avenging family murder. They have a primitive relationship with language, but the more they're listened to, they gain embodiment and change. So we have the furies as a very um, uh, rudimentary figures to begin, and then they stand up, and then they learn to crawl, and then they become full personalities. So that you could see this drama la of language getting a foothold, or an idea getting a foothold in the characters' minds on the stage. Um, they stem from the oldest part of the brain, which responds to impulse and grudge. They pulse with movement. They're the beat before rational thought. The precursors and sponsors of poetic language. Um, now, they were a hugely physical part uh, for the actors because we worked with um, uh, um, with a, a, a choreographer who um, who made them work extremely hard, and uh, they were very bruised by the end of the uh, the run. Um, Whenever a character assents to them, they give that person a superhuman drive. Like the humans changed into vampires in the Twilight series, you know, the difference between Bella before and Bella after. Uh, they're always trying to influence the play in the direction of revenge. And I remember um, uh, Jay also talking about uh, what it was like to... Uh, be it Clytemnestra in full throat, uh, in full flight, uh, calling for revenge. And, uh, you know, you can always tell an audience that's listening by the degrees of coughing. And uh, she was saying, uh, she was uh, in the middle of this, and she, she, um, she said to me she, uh, what she was thinking in the middle of the speech. She gave her a very powerful performance, and she said, yes, you know, just you dare cough, you fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody dared to cough. She was, she was not having it, you know. Talk about a commanding 
performance. So I'll be listening very carefully to the coffee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you see, he got coffee now. I shouldn't have mentioned it. No, it's the cold, it's not that. It's the cold. <laughs> now, so um, uh, this speech I want to uh, take you through that shows you the way in which the Furies operate. Um, yeah, so this is Fury 1 approaching Clytemnestra. So she's prostrated with grief. Uh, at the death of Iphigenia, and the ashes of Iphigenia are in her room. Fury one, who'll speak for the dead girls if I don't? The teenagers with skinny shoulders, out in party dresses, no coats. Their bodies are found on waste ground later, strangled with their own tights. Clytemnestra, leave me alone. You see them in photos. Bad haircuts, teeth too large, clothes chosen by mum. Sleep, I need sleep. She'll follow you there. She's looking for you. Where were you? Sit up so we can talk. Clytemnestra doubles up in pain. So sentimental. Words are easy. I deal in facts. Who did she resemble? Everyone said she looked like me. She wasn't his to give, she was yours. Did Clytemnestra care for them when they were ill? I did. Who was it took her into danger? Agamemnon. Clytemnestra is the better parent. Did Clytemnestra kill, no, rape, then kill her daughter? He took her from you. No man should come between mother and daughter. Love her to death, they did. They fucked her, fucked her till they broke her. Clytemnestra lunges for the ashes. My daughter, oops, have I, uh, yeah. Um, my daughter, Iphigenia, come home to Clytemnestra's body, which is warm. She crams the ashes into her mouth. Fury one. Now the whole drama comes into focus. How shall we make Agamemnon pay? Now, the reason I had uh, Clytemnestra eating the ashes was I heard a, a haunting thing from a friend of mine who was a psychotherapist saying that um, she heard a mother who'd lost a baby saying that she wanted to do that with the child's ashes. And it makes sense, you know, that you would want to, um, it would be an only way of getting, uh, reabsorbing the child into your body, into safety. I wanted to, ch so the play tracks the tiny, tiny emotional movements from this frustration of grief into, um, into vengeance. And that was the story I was interested in, uh, in tracking. In one way, uh, for a while, I thought I wanted to give a feminist reading of Clytemnestra, but I discovered that this wasn't a straightforward uh, enterprise because um, even though I wasn't content with the uh, Athena's judgment um, of Clytemnestra, um, I also couldn't really argue that Clytemnestra had done the right thing um, by, by killing uh, Agamemnon because on the grounds of uh, if she was, there's a slight dishonesty and she's saying um, uh, I have to avenge my daughter whereas by killing Agamemnon, she was obliging Orestes to 
to avenge Agamemnon. So she was putting the Furies off her back onto uh, Electra and Orestes' shoulders. So she was just passing things on. She wasn't providing a solution. Now, in um, the Aeschylus and Euripides, uh, Aegisthus, uh, who is Tritonestra's lover, um, is a pitiable figure. Here's Joan Russell and Jay Griffiths. Um, I wanted to make him a more credible figure because I, th I felt that the plays gave him short shrift. Um, he has his own difficulties from the House of Thyestes. He's Agamemnon's cousin. Um, and in the struggle over the throne, for, uh, throne of Mycenae, Atreus, Agamemnon's father, made Thyestes eat his children. I think that's right, isn't it? Um, Thyestes was conceived by his father, oh dear, this is complicated, <laughs> in an incestuous relationship with his sister and destined to avenge the family. I mean Aegisthus, I think, there. In my play, Aegisthus is haunted by the same furies as those torturing Clytemnestra. So the two are a natural emotional partners because they, they've suffered from the same fate, as well as being both allies in wanting Agamemnon dead. In the scene in which they meet, Aegisthus is being debased by his own fury, but is proving to be a less compliant subject than the grieving Clytemnestra. So the two Furies have got case, it's almost like social workers having cases, uh, malign cases, and they're, they're going in slightly different directions. It's also a meeting between Fury 1 and Fury 2, who are different characters. And we have ma a man playing a Fury as well. Um, here we go. Fury 2 forces Aegisthus to look at Clytemnestra. He blocks me at every turn. He never cooperates. And yours? Fury 1. Coming on nicely. <laughs> My puppet has tangled strings. He weighs a ton. Stand up so I can see you. Come on. Both Furies haul Aegisthus to his feet. I can make grown men eat soil, but this one... He is indeed full tardy. I stink. I haven't washed in a while. I can't smell anything bad. You're fine. It's rank like rotting food, blocked drains. I've tried and tried to hide this stuff. At night, it comes from the taps. My hands are raw from scrubbing. It just keeps coming. Shame for not being what my father wants. So weak, I disgust. Myself. You've been crushed by the clan, I understand. I want revenge on Agamemnon. Nobody kills this tribe and lives. The father's gone. I want Agamemnon dead for his crime. Sister, well met. For once we have the perfect rhyme. Two furies, one murder on their mind. My mind says terrible things to me. As if my blood were dreaming revenge. I get no rest from that wine. It grates. You hear it too? It makes me want to claw off my skin. You mean I'm not mad? 
So my theories are very specific entities uh, which affect all my characters, and they're the inner cog which drives the plot. Cassandra, for example, sees through space and time and is the only character who perceives the audience. <coughs> Even though she's for, uh, uh, witnessed the fall of Troy and hears the Fury's claims on her, she shows that the beat between hearing them and doing what they want is the question of free will. For me, the gods and characters are all trying to control the play we're in, so that the theatricality of the drama is part of the plot. In this, the Furies are the sponsors of poetic language, but Cassandra is a truth principle beyond art, because she sees the audience, she sees through the illusion. She's a figure for the poet in that sense. So she tells Agamemnon about uh, what he's hearing. What she's hearing about the poem. The blood choirs here. They're staging a play about vengeance. Their plot is, I'm going to kill the man who destroyed my city and who sacrificed his daughter. Who are you talking to? The ones who want us in the light to do their dirty work. The vengeance mothers. I get it. Seen too many things. You poor, poor girl. No, silly. I'm the lucky one. I get to see how it works. The slides and pulleys that pivot the future. Nothing to do with right or wrong. It's just what part you choose to play, to choose to play and why. Morals are everything. The head of a clan must do what's best for all his people. If it suits him. Um... So my argument against Agamemnon is that, uh, okay, he was constrained to do what he had to do, but he did it slightly too quickly. It was a little bit too convenient for him, a solution, to, um, to pay with somebody else's lap. Anyway, Cassandra goes on. Oh, I seem to have... PowerPoint, it's a miracle that this is working, by the way. Um, I took a... Uh, there was a part I was going to quote, which is, here we go. Um, I took a detail for Cassandra from a friend's nightmare, and it was amazing. When I heard this, I thought, oh my God, the, you know, the Greek myths are alive and kicking very much so. It was that she dreamt she put her hands to cover her eyes, and her hands were see-through. So she couldn't, I mean, it was ma it's a marvellous uh, image for horror about not being able to turn away. It's the same as uh, Sarah Lund with her little torch, isn't it? going closer and closer towards the monstrosity. It's about the price of seeing. So she, uh, Cassandra says, I close my eyes, but I have see-through lids. I use my hands. They're see-through. Electra is uh, um, the next character who's, uh, you know, I had to decide things about. I had great difficulty with Electra. I didn't want her in the original play because I hate her so much in Sophocles' <laughs> play because she's such a pain. You know, she has that remorseless going on and on and on that the tragic uh, heroines have. Um, so I wanted to show Electra as a very different character 
before she had the furious drones in her head about um, needing the need to avenge um, her father's death. Um, so uh, this is one. Yes, I, I think I'll leave um, Electra because I want to go on to talk about the the chorus. My favourite character in the whole play, which I didn't expect because. Um, you know, the, I didn't want to have a kind of chorus which is a pseudo, uh, uh, you know, doing choral recitation and stuff like that. I wanted an, uh, an, the representative of the ordinary man on stage. Um, so, as part of, an important part of imagining the play, you have to imagine the gods, but you also have to imagine the political situation in which it's feasible that this situation would have ar arisen. So what I did was to um, set the play in the future when oil has run out and uh, that imagine a situation of food scarcity so that uh, Troy was important, um, getting to Troy was important as a matter of securing trade routes for food. Um, the play was originally called The Kill Floor um, and I imagined the chorus as workers in an abattoir um, so, you know, they were uh, providing the meat for the community. Um, I actually did some research. Oh, you can see how the kill floor aspect of things here with, you know, blood coming down the tiles uh, and this rust in the design of the floor. That's um, chorus number three. Um, so I did some research in abattoir techniques. Um, Oh, and you can see these are the gantries, and there's a whole um, movement sequence with them slaughtering the last of the herd, the Atreus herd. So things are getting very uh, urgent. Um, the people are hungry, and of course there's no political loyalty if stomachs are empty. So it's really a fundamental social requirement, the need to provide, of a ruler to provide uh, food for the clan. So this is a, a little bit of... Uh, from the chorus uh, thing. The beef hock restrainer model BHR1 eliminates kill floor downtime required for rehanging fallen carcasses, rugged stainless steel and galvanized construction for long trouble-free operation. He steps out into his dream thought. Just as long as the one killed today isn't me. So the, the chorus uh, are their general representatives, but they also are individuals with uh, uh, personalities and worries of their own. So the kill for, floor, in a way, is a metaphor for the whole of life, in a sense, because, um, uh, Agam and, and also particularly for this uh, house, because Agamemnon ends up strung up on the kill floor himself. So the whole house of Atreus has become a kill floor. A word about the blood. So interesting. Um, during the, the production, I learnt um, the recipe for stage blood. Does anybody know it here? I imagine it's something that you would know. Um, it, it's made up of uh, cochineal dye, water, gravy granules, and mint, essence of mint, so that if you have to have anything to do with it around your mouth, um, it, it doesn't taste so much a gravy. Um, but uh, there's a, an, an interesting moment I put in in the play that, uh, um, that Electra nicks her finger on one of the uh, towers there, the blades. 
And so we get a, a glimpse of blood just before the, the climax. Now, I know in, in the original Greek uh, stage, the blood was never shown on stage. Um, so this is a modern innovation. But it's very interesting. That smidgen of blood acts in the same way as a loaded gun in a play. The minute it's introduced, you know that the gun has to discharge and somebody is shot. Um, it, as sure as eggs is eggs. And it was very odd to see one's own reaction um, that you'd seen a little bit of blood, so you wanted to see more. <laughs> it was kind of a very basic bloodthirstiness in one's reaction to it. it was, um, I checked with other people as well to see if they felt the same. And, and it, it was quite shocking, that reaction, I found. Um, what did I learn about Clytemnestra? Um, oh, let's see, have I got a different, better slide? There we are, there's, a, there's more of the chorus, and that's the fridge, you see, Electra gets shut in the fridge as part of uh, the thing. So, um, as I mentioned before, I've decided I, I couldn't rehabilitate Clytemnestra. Uh, I think she still does the wrong thing for the right reasons, perfectly understandable reasons, uh, and that she fails as a mother. Um, Perhaps if it, it's made me think that perhaps if Iphigenia is the really pivotal uh, figure in all of that, this House of Atreus um, tragedy, with the idea of self-sacrifice for the common good, although I, I would feel more confident in that as an idea if men did it more often. In, in <laughs> that, you know, that it's a good idea. I mean, it's, it seem, seems to be the kind of thing that's good for young girls to do and nobody else. So... Um, I suppose I'd just like to finish this uh, talk with, um, I mentioned the theatricality of the Furies wanting to uh, influence the plot. And uh, one of the great things um, is getting an insight uh, into seeing how a theatre works. And every day they would send me the stage manager's notes on the day's rehearsals and the performances and so on and so forth. So, um, because I'm a poet primarily, um, this is my final thought about the whole uh, experience of writing a Greek tragedy, uh, which I'd like to do more of, but um, I think, uh, yes, anyway, so this is, this is um, my final thoughts on it in a poem. Did I give you a nice slide? Oh, well, that'll do. Backwards? Well, that'll do. Yeah, there we go. Here we go. So... This is um, all taken from the stage manager's notes, okay? Verbatim, but I've reworked it into a poem. Tragedy. Stage manager's notes. All calls are subject to change. Move towers to stage. Rig pulleys. Cast out of costume. Lunch. Cast into costume. Cast out of costume. Tea. Chains stage right of tower. Leave her on the floor. The knives have been ordered. Clytemnestra sees a vision of Iphigenia. Miss Blythe is tripping over her Iphigenia costume. Could the bottom be taken up? Actors aren't happy with the floor. It's too hard. Could we find...
find a size 5 in Cassandra's shoes. Clytemnestra and Aegisthus arrive. She will now lead. Electra's boots fit okay. <laughs> the Atreus compound awaits Agamemnon's return. Fury's costume fitting. Chat with marketing. We will need someone to catch Miss Blythe in the DSR trap. Mr. Russell hit his head during scene eight as Mr. Redmore pushes him. He's okay. For scene four and six, we will need a bow. Can the sleeves in Cassandra's costume be cut down? Press interviews. Sound quiet time. There was a long wait for curtain call. Can't be helped. A mobile phone went off in scene two. Miss Blythe dropped the blood pellet in scene 12, so she didn't have it. Small audience, but performance well received. No notes today. No notes today. Thank you very much. Cerebral for such, such a, a physical play and a huge amount um, to chew on. Would you be prepared to take a few questions? I'd be delighted, yeah. If there's any comments afterwards, there is, there is indeed. So, shall I go first? <laughs> you might have to. Tell us about the Helen play, what was going to happen to Helen. Oh, yeah, it was the deathbed of Helen. And I wanted to explore the difference between why Helen was a golden girl and Clytemnestra was the bad girl. Um, so I wanted to give a hinterland between the two sisters and the sibling rivalry between them. Um, and I'm, I'm, I think it was even further removed from the original myth, so I think that's why um, they didn't have confidence in it as a play. I, I, still, I, I still would like to do something about Helen that's not a, a horrible most beautiful woman. I mean, my Helen actually would be quite mosh, I think. Mosh? Well, a little bit jolly led, you know, not uh, a, a <laughs> bit... Well, sure, no, no, no. Um, uh, that it would, that she wouldn't be, uh, I don't know, a kind of, uh, an Elizabeth Taylor figure. I think that that's to debase Helen and to trivialise her. Uh, there has to be something more compelling about Helen. So I wanted to explore that, but I didn't get the chance really. Yeah. Mm. And that anyone? Oh, I'm surprised. Oliver. Did you see the um, Katie Mitchell production of Agamemnon of Ted Hughes' Agamemnon? No. Just that she too was very concerned with what had gone on in Clytemnestra's mind between them, between mm. the Ishnara and, and the setting of the play. And she had. Um, the idea she took up was uh, that she had kept a lot of uh, souvenirs, yes. um, particularly her dresses. Yes. So, you know, it's interesting at the same time you were thinking along the same lines. Yes, but the play, by following um, a translation, it, the play doesn't allow you to explore that more than, than that, does it? Um, what was great about this was having the freedom 
to uh, to really embody the question. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, I didn't see the, I didn't see the play. So uh, yeah. Would you identify a single theme that uh, gave unity to your Clytemnestra play? I think it would be something to do with hunger mm. um, and being absorbed <laughs> against your will. I think it's basic. I mean, these are basic physical appetites. And it was interesting, I got um, my step-grandchildren were seven and six, and they came along to the rehearsal, and uh, they, their favorite characters were the Furies. They completely understood what the Furies were, uh, even though some adults have, had trouble with them. And, and I said, okay, what do you think I should put in the next play? They said, a hundred Furies. But I think, you know, there's those instinctual drives, something like that. It's not a, a very intellectual, uh, Formulation, but I think that would be the, the big theme. Mm. Well, I think Electra actually is, is the pivot of, of the play because uh, I, I, I cut her out. I put her in. I, wasn't in I, I felt very hostile to her and then I was persuaded <laughs> to put her in. Um, Largely because she carries the electric complex baggage. Um, but the minute I put her in, she solved every plot problem I had. So she had to be central because, uh, you know, a Greek, well, good theatre is all about plotting, uh, I think, unless you're in, in an avant-garde mode, which I, I wasn't. Um, which is why, if you look at Breaking Bad, for example, it's fantastic theatre because it, it's all about plotting. Yes, the, the plot. Um, so she got me out of all the difficulties. So she, she is, is, is the pivot. And I have the same character playing Electra and Iphigenia. Because they're sisters, of course. We forget that. Um, yes. So uh, I hope that answers your question a bit anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> very similar to yours, actually. But I suppose you say you can't bear the Electra, Sophocles and Electra. And I just wondered as you were forced to discover there was some value in Electra mm. as this pivotal character, did you change your attitude to her? I mean, deciding to put her in a fridge is quite <laughs> is a, is a brutal thing for any playwright to do. Um, well, I'll let her out again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, um, at this day, you say she, you, you wanted to understand how, what, you know, what happens to her, and at this I, well, it was important to me that she wasn't a complete uh, daddy's girl, yeah. and I wanted her to um, to do justice to Clytemnestra, and uh, you know, the earlier scenes with Electra made her the practical one. She's running the the, uh, comp the compound while Clytemnestra is incapacitating. So. Um, I wanted to round her out in that sense. She wasn't just banging on about that. Um, but I think I think my hostility actually is probably to the we were talking about uh, you know the Oedipal and uh, Electra complex over lunch as it happens. But you know my hostility to that is I mean I don't really believe that these um, these two 
complex is work. Now, I don't have a psychoanalytical defense of why that is, um, but uh, it seems to me such a parody of the complexity of family uh, relations. Um, so my hostility is really to being limited by a literal understanding of gender in the place. I'm very careful of what I say because yes. I know I'm in the presence <laughs> of my betters here. Oh, <laughs> yes, another question in the row of those three, yes. It is about Clytemnestra as an object of Electra complex. She's the mother of those two daughters. Mm. And you know, you seem to oh, yeah. concentrate on, I hadn't thought on of that. her as a mother of, of uh, vengeant mothers, but she was also an object. That's right. I hadn't thought of that. Hostile field. So it's not, it's not, a, yes. it's not a part of you. Brilliant. No. That's fantastic. Yes, I hadn't, I hadn't uh, thought that. It's amazing. The circles within circles within <laughs> circles, because the, the interrelationship, the family relationships are so complex, aren't they? Um, yeah, that's a very good point. Justine. Um, also thinking about gender, and you mentioned that one of your theories was male, and I wondered what you did with that, whether that was important in the separation of their identities. Well, I just want to de-specify sex, if you, if you like, physical, uh, well, do I mean sex or gender here? But I just thought that the Furies would have all the energy of a full physical presence and you couldn't actually just characterize them as female. It just seems to me that it's time to move on from that. You can, you can be, that the important thing about the Furies would be their vengeance, not, not, not of their women. There, there are actually a couple of male Iranias named, and, and it's oh. very funny. Um, I happen, happened to check this out quite recently, and there's a bit of this, the, the, the Erin Noose in the House of Thebes is occasionally envisaged in, in a male way. So um, well, I, I, I think you're that. exactly, you knew it, you knew <laughs> yeah. it in, in, in um, a, a, a former um, life yes, or something. Yes. And um, the. Well, the they are very, very interesting. The Fury is an incredibly interesting mm. thing because the actual word in Hesiod that they're born from, the bloody drops that fall when Paros is castrated, it is not clear whether they're primarily blood or semen. And they fall onto earth, so that in them, what exactly their physical constitution is. Um, and of course, they don't sort of have sex uh, themselves, they sort of live in this sort of collective. But it, they are a it's, it's incredibly entity. interesting yeah. when they're born from exactly the same womb, basically, as Aphrodite, yeah. who, but are they semen or are they the blood from the groin is, 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 is left completely un, unclear. Um, so I think you clearly have got onto that. Well, <laughs> I, think, I mean, you know, if you, if you think about it, though, in that, in that way, unconsciously, it, it does make sense, doesn't mm. it? That they should, they're, they're, they're pre-individual. So that's what I really wanted to ask was two questions. Can I just ask a couple of questions? Just before I forget them. One is, you, I know you know a lot about neurology and the brain. So when you said that revenge is in the oldest bit of the brain, what, what does that mean? Well, it's a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, I think it's... Uh, is that proven by neurologists? Oh, no, no. Um, uh, well, I suspect it would be. But I, I can't give you the... Um, what do sort of primates do revenge for kin murder? Lower primates. 
I'm generally no. interested. <laughs> I don't know, perhaps somebody here can answer that, but um, I mean, I think certainly speaking as a human, that uh, it's, it's a question of uh, looking at yourself as a social being, isn't it? That the, uh, the childish reaction is to get revenge. Uh, somebody takes your toy, uh, you push them over. Whereas <laughs> when you're, um, uh, you know, you learn to behave, it's all in the direction of not punching the other person. Not yet. Back. <laughs> not yet. Not Try yet. and delay that response. I mean, so perhaps... Better cold. Uh, mm, ah, well, yes. But I think it's, probably, you know, if you're going to behave as a person, you need to uh, mediate that. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> but, um, yes, I, I, yes, well, well mm. spotted. I should, I should tighten that up um, uh -huh. and ask the question of a neurologist. Yeah. The other, well, no, I'm just, I am genu genuinely interested in, in that. Uh, I certainly thought you, mu you must have got a study. No, I, there's not a particular um, point, study. Point, I, me, no. point me to. And the, the other is... Um, where did you first contact, this is, this is the sort of classicist question, but what was you, how did you first get to know the Greeks and Romans? It wasn't the tragedy paper. It was. Right? It was? Oh, no. Um, what no, do you do no. at school? Do Welsh-speaking kids get to read any Greek literature, I mean, in, in English I mean, or, or, or Welsh? Or, you know. No, we saw, I remember seeing a production of Medea in, in school. You did? Yes, um, but in English. It was a theatre and education production. Um, and How old were you then? Oh, 12? Yeah. Yes. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking uh, that the main introduction was through Shakespeare, right. which I suppose doesn't count. But it does, it does in terms <laughs> of uh, archetype, perhaps. And I know it does actually, there is a lineage that counts there, which uh, um, Fiona knows about. Um, I'm trying to think. I think there are, there certainly are Welsh translations. Mm. You didn't do Latin A level, though. I did Latin, yeah. You did do Latin A level? Yeah. Oh, no, O level. You did, right. Yes. Um, but we read Virgil, um, not the tragedy. The, the tragedy. Mm. Yes. Mm. So you went to Cambridge, so you're doing English literature. Yes. And, and then it's that tragedy paper where you do Shakespeare and the, the Greeks. Yes. And, uh, it was so fantastic to get value for money for that paper. What are you value for suffering? Yes. Do we have any more questions? Shall we do some book signing? Yes. What's that question back? You wait like you're in auction. You sort of yeah. You better know. Know. Nostril. I thought you, you yeah. had a question. If there are no more questions, no. 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 <laughs> Applaud, book sign and have a cup of tea. Yeah.